Welcome to the DLR Library podcast, Need to Read. Recommended reads from those in the know. Today I'm talking to Paul Cudahy. He is a sports commentator and currently the editor of Celtic View, the official magazine of Celtic Football Club. He's also an avid reader and a writer. He's written a number of books, including the best-selling biography of Tommy Burns, also the Costello trilogy of books. He's co-author of The Best of the Celtic View and has also edited a number of books for the club, including The Road to Seville and The Official Tribute to Henrik Larsson. He also has published a non-fiction book, Read All About It, which he talks about his um, love of reading and, and his effort to get back into that again. Um, so you're very welcome, Paul. Thank, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. Could you tell me a little about your your love of reading and football? It's kind of a, well, I guess it's not an unusual mix. That would be reductive. <laughs> Which, if you had to choose books or football, what would you choose? Oh, that's that's a tough. That's like asking me to choose my favourite child. Uh, that's that's a tough one. I mean, it's funny. Like if I had to think back when I was a wee boy. I always remember kicking a ball about from as, as long as I can remember. Always loved playing football. Was never good enough to ever have any great aspirations for actually playing it at any level. So I'm doing the next best thing and, and writing about it and working for my team and yeah. writing about my team. So it's a real labour of love. But at the same time, again, from as long as I can remember, as soon as I, I learned to read, my mum was a primary school teacher, so she taught me and my sisters to read even before I went to school and I've never stopped reading ever since so if I could uh, still play football and then just maybe read at half time and full time that would that would make me happy okay. From your mother then sort of urging you to read you kind of got the love from there Yeah I mean my mum my parents are both teachers uh, although my dad is, was a maths teacher and to my eternal shame I've never passed a maths exam in my life <laughs> and which was uh, as a teenager Oh it's fault not yours <laughs> Well, you know, as a teenager failing my maths exam, I made for kind of quite fraught times, but um, he, he laughs about it now. They, there was always books in the house. Uh, as I say, my mum taught us to read. She was always encouraging us to read. You know, we were regular visitors to the local library, and that was that was kind of really where we first started. For me, that was always the, the thing that always in my head. You know, that way, the first time you kind of investigated books and found books yourself, it was probably the first place where I stayed that I was allowed to go to without my parents taking me because that was yeah. like kind of they knew I'd be safe there um, so yeah. it's just it's just always been part of my life and I've kept that up through my teenagers and into, into adulthood yeah your podcast that you run about sort of similar to mine about what people like to read and rec- book recommendations did you start that to sort of hold yourself accountable to read more is that why well you'd, you'd mentioned the, the book I'd written uh, yeah we'd all about it about five years ago and it was one of those things where you know that way I was I love buying books. I love having books. The actual physical book, I just, I, I love it as a as a, a product. I love going into bookshops. And so I was finding I was still buying lots of books, but I wasn't reading as many as I should. So that, that project was a conscious effort. Originally just started trying to force myself to read more books and really get into reading again. And it was one of my daughters was at university at the time and she was keeping a reading diary. So I thought that was quite a good idea. And that's how that book came about. So I've kind of, ever since then, I've, I've really kept up the reading. The podcast just came about, I've just got a friend who's a, a writer and we'll meet quite regularly and just have a cup of coffee and we invariably end up chatting about books we've read or we want to read and I just thought that'd be quite a good idea. I love talk, just sitting tip with him talking about books, I thought that'd be quite a, a good idea for a podcast and I have to say, you know, I've, I've spoken to you you know, already for my podcast in terms of 
uh, your love of, of reading and just anybody who loves reading and taking them back to their childhood, their favourite books. It's just, it's a great way to spend a bit of time because you talk to people about a, a shared passion. Yeah. And you'll never, you'll never tire of it or run out of, of options. <laughs> so. Well, do you know, the, the thing, it's, it's been, it's brilliant just doing it, you know, actually just sitting and speaking to people from all different walks of life, different professions, different ages, and everybody's got a different attitude to books they've chosen different books every single episode I invariably end up with more books to read more reading recommendations and I've, I've actually I'd kept a note this year of the books I've read and the majority of them have come out of the podcast either yeah. books that guests have recommended or some of the guests I've had on who've written books and I've, I've gone and read their books so it's been a brilliant source of and some of the books I've read I would never I've picked up other than somebody you know that way when, when somebody starts talking about a book so passionately and you think God that if that affects them so yeah. much I, I want to I want to see if it has that effect on me. So that's been a brilliant yeah. thing. And um, it's so I wonder what it is because when you read a really good book, you really want people to read it. <laughs> it's like this natural urge. The next step is to force people it force it on other people, you know. I'm I'm kind of torn with that to be honest because yeah. I, I totally agree with you. On the one hand, you like you just want to to share that love. You want you want to put the book in somebody's hand and say, yeah, "This is just this is amazing." But at the same time, you know that way when you particularly really favourite books, where you invest yeah a part of you in them. I'm slightly apprehensive because one on the one hand, if somebody comes back and said, mm, "I'm not I don't really like that." Yeah. Slightly disappointed and I find myself being slightly judgmental. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's quite teenager, isn't it? Like you're gonna judge people by their books. But I get it. Like I I've kind of you have to you just be like, no offense if you don't like it. It's you know, it's not a reflection on me. <laughs> Do you know one thing I've I've uh, you know in the, in the lead up to Christmas this year that actually what I was thinking of doing is just everybody it's just like close my, my children and, and just a couple of close relatives that we would be the ones the only ones that would exchange gifts and this year I was thinking of just getting everyone a book yeah so but you know that we just kind of what you just touched on that idea of, in terms of a recommendation trying to think of a book that obviously I would like but I, I think they would enjoy yeah. which is actually which is proven quite challenging some of them immediately you'll think well oh, they would like that other ones I'm, I'm trying to think of something just so that everybody gets a, a book on Christmas Day. Very thoughtful and you should write in the cover if I ever give a book to anyone I always write inside the the cover although some people are precious about that but I think it's it's a nice thing because you do forget who gave you the book. Or where yeah. you <laughs> do you know it's funny I, I had a, a chat with one of, one of the guests on my podcast and and she liked something you know sometimes when you get a second hand book and somebody will have made wee notes. Yeah. I, I don't like that so I never take yeah. Even when I was a student, I never took notes in my book. But I think that idea of signing a book for someone, as in, you know, I think that's different. I think that's... Yeah, yeah. I know, so I know a, lot, a lot of maybe writers might destroy their books. I don't really do that, but I, I would definitely sign it. But not like... Once, well, do you know what? Exactly. <laughs> I was once... I went to a book launch once of a, a Scottish writer called Dan Donovan who wrote this book called Buddha Da, which is just a brilliant Glasgow novel. And... When I was there with a with a friend and introduced me to someone and the girl, she kind of knew me through through Celtic rather than football. So she, you know, ended up having a chat with football and she was delighted. And she said, Oh, wait till, wait till I tell my brother I met you. And uh, she came up later with Andor's book and said, Can you sign that for my brother? And I said, It's not my book. 
<laughs> it's, it, and she had Anne Donovan signed at the front. She said, no, sign it, sign it in the inside back because he'll be really pleased. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to go, what are, you, what are you getting him to sign this book? So, <laughs> it's, it's related. Yeah, there is a book somewhere that's signed by me that, that I didn't write. My, uh, we had a film a film club in the library and, and we had um, the documentary The Farthest. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, um, it's, a, it's about the... Um, um, I'm totally forgetting the Voyager missions to the, um, into space. And we had uh, my mum's boyfriend brought along just a random space book that wasn't written by the director and got asked her to sign it. <laughs> She's like, I didn't write this, but okay. <laughs> it's close enough. Um, so you mentioned Celtic. Obviously, um, those who know you will, will know you're a big Celtic person. You, you've written books about them. You, you commentate on the matches. Um this, you you you're the editor of the Celtic View, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a Glasgow connection, and and um, things that come to mind, I suppose, for me with Celtic would be the the Irish connection. There's a big Irish fan base, and they were kind of started to help the Irish, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was originally it started in the East End of Glasgow, and uh, it was a an Irish priest, Brother Walford, who it, it was started because he'd seen how. Football was still in its early stages in the late 19th century, but he'd seen how it was attracting crowds and it was a way of raising money to help feed basically poor people who are unemployed or, or kids, you know, because it was real, you know, desperate poverty in that part of the city at that time. And he got together with a group of Irish businessmen and they formed this football club. And at the time there was there was loads of because football was still in its early stages, a lot of clubs were very much almost based in certain parts of cities or towns. So there was loads of Irish-based clubs uh, at the time. But, you know, a combination of that charitable aspect and some pretty driven businessmen and the Celtic emerged as the as the kind of Irish club, particularly in the west of Scotland, and, and went on from, from strength to strength. But uh, there's always been... The Irish, and the Irish connection is still really strong now. It's still strong, even though it's a sort of international players and all that kind of thing. I guess, yeah, that's the same with every football club, though. I think it's it's one of those things. I think I suppose whether it's on a personal level or like for a for a football club, you always have to remember where you come from. You always yeah. have to remember your roots. So the club is very very big on that in terms of you know we're a Scottish club, but we've got Irish roots. Charities at the absolute heart of of what we do as well as the football. And and again, that is saying on a personal level, you know, for a lot of people in Scotland, the west of Scotland, they have those Irish roots come back to either parents or grandparents or great grandparents. So there is there's always been that connection between the two countries. Mm-hmm. You live and breathe Celtic, do you? Yes. I mean, <laughs> as I said to you, it's a it's a labour of love. I I'm a journalist by profession. So I was working in at the time a paper called the Sunday Herald, which uh, no longer exists in Glasgow. And somebody I had worked with just phoned me one night and said how do you fancy coming to work for Celtic? And I just said yes. I didn't even know what the job was. I just thought, yeah, yeah that's that's the one for me. And I'll do. And at, yeah, and at the time, my kids were all still young. They were all still primary school. And it was, it was the only time in my life that I think I've done anything that I thought was quite cool. Because they could go in and say, oh, my dad signed for Celtic. But then that novelty soon wore off, I have to, yeah. have to say. <laughs> they didn't see you on the pitch. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Or fortunately not. And are your kids into to Celtic as well? Yeah, I mean, when they were all younger. So, so I was always working at the games, but my wife is a big Celtic fan as well. Mm-hmm. So she would have taken the kids. So my two daughters, oldest daughters now in her 30s, mother, two kids are in their 20s. So 
she would have taken the girls and then my son. So the three, at one point, the three of them, and as they all got older, they've all, you know, they've dropped away to an extent of they don't go to the football every every week. They still that would still be their team, but you know, mm-hmm. as they as they became teenagers, you know, they were wanting to. You know, they'd go want to go into town with their friends, and they would want to do their own thing. So, but it's the, that's always there. That's they, they just didn't, they didn't get a choice. Yeah, I mentioned you before. My boyfriend is a huge Celtic supporter. His dad's from Glasgow, so it's kind of it's something they share. Um, so I, I do. It's um, it's, in, it's sort of in my peripheral <laughs> a lot. Yeah, you're aware <laughs> of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I know one thing he has been talking about is the the ten in the row. I've been hearing. A lot about that, um, and he said <laughs> yes. maybe I'd ask you if, if you're still optimistic about that. I know things aren't aren't as good as they were recently. I'm I'm always optimistic, partly because I've always felt, and I, I don't know if it's the kind of as you get older as well that I I have no impact on the football. So there's nothing. So whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic, it's the team that will yeah will do well. So I, I never see the point of thinking, oh, we're not going to win today because. Why you know you're yeah. as well yeah. like a glass half full person? I do. I genuinely, I, I still genuinely think that we'll that Celtic will be successful this season. Yeah, yeah. And maybe um, you'd explain what ten in a row is. <laughs> I, so I, I, yeah. So for anyone who who doesn't know, so it's ten. It's basically ten league championships and mm-hmm. in, in consecutive, and it's never been done before. Celtic won nine league titles in a row back in the sixties and seventies, and that was replicated in the kind of. 90s by Rangers so this would be the first time in Scotland that a team had done 10 consecutively titles it's very rarely I think maybe a couple of Eastern European clubs have done it in the past so it's it's a rare achievement to have that level of sustained success so it's, it's a big it's a big thing in the city for us to try and win it and for our rivals to try and to, to stop it Hopefully fingers crossed Absolutely yeah I'll be probably watching it um, <laughs> So Maybe that leads us to one of well, if you want your first book, Road to Lisbon. Do you want yeah. to start first, or do you, do you have a? Yeah, a well, that's that's absolutely fine. Yeah, it's a, a, um, a seamless link. Yeah, <laughs> so um, uh, I do know 1967 is a very important year, and maybe you just explain a little bit about that and, and the book, and what you like about it. Yeah, so the, the Road to Lisbon is basically a novel set in 1967 and based around Celtic winning the European Cup in 1967, which. And, and football terms was historic because they were the first British, the first non-Latin, as in not from Spain, Italy or Portugal, to win the European Cup, which is the, the biggest club competition. It, it was a, a massive event in football terms and obviously in terms of for the city of Glasgow as well. And Martin Gregg and Charles McGarry have, have written this novel based on at this time. And it's for, for anyone who, who reads any kind of football novels, there's not a great amount of football novels. The Damned United which uh, is a great football novel that's set, it's basically based around Brian Clough's 44 Days in Charge of Leeds. And it's it's a similar vein. So The Road to Lisbon is basically two different stories that run through it. One story is the story of this young group of young guys from the Gorbals uh, area of Glasgow who basically get a car and decide to drive from Glasgow to Lisbon for this uh, European Cup final. Now it's at the time, I think it was about 10,000 people did travel from Glasgow to Portugal, most of whom had never left Scotland, never mind, never left the rest of Great Britain, but made this pilgrimage to support their team. So it's a kind of road trip in a way. Mm-hmm. These young guys 
who are completely out of their comfort zone, are travelling abroad. There's a bit of romance in it as well. One of the guys meets a girl that he leaves him with total affections between heading towards the football and pursuing his, his love of her. And it's a really, it's it's funny. It's really, it's really evocative of that time in the late 60s. And the other narrative is basically a fictionalised account of that time from the perspective of Jockstein, who was the Celtic manager. So in one hand, you'll have a chapter where the young guys are travelling, say, through Portugal or Spain. And then the next chapter is in the head of Jockstein as he's preparing for the biggest game of his life and his players' lives. And then it all culminates in this day in May the 25th, 1967 in Lisbon. And what's brilliant about it is, I actually I know Martin really well. He's a journalist and now a publisher. So I knew him through journalism. So he writes, him and Charles have written the two. Martin writes the Jockstein part mm, and, yeah. and Charles writes the, the perspective of the, the young guys. Because originally I think he'd written it as a play or a screenplay and then they've made it into a novel. And because there's so few, it's one of my, my bugbears actually, there's so few good football novels. Yeah. I'm not sure if the sport doesn't lend itself because too many people think, you know, like the, whether it's a, a book or a film of football, you can't replicate the action. Yeah. Sport, you can really only do it with things like golf, something where it's just an individual. Yeah. So, they, so like, you know, like an actor could learn to, to make a golf swing. But yeah. you can't teach, you know, the Damned United, for example, when they turned that into a film, the football scenes in it were embarrassing because they, instead of just getting footballers who could run and kick a ball, they got actors who looked like actors trying to play football. But The Road to Lisbon is a novel, is a, a brilliant football novel, and the fact that it's about, obviously, Celtic's greatest ever triumph it really just it, it helps it enormously. I was just thinking, um, could you be the person to write a football novel? Because I'd say, as a commentator, you have to think really fast to describe what you're seeing, so maybe that would lend itself very well. But it is one of the things I have a, I have a list of, an ongoing list of uh, ideas for books that I'm either working on or would like to, to write. I, I think eventually I'll run out of time and I'll just actually write a book with just synopsis of all the books I've never written. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and somebody, somebody else can take them up. One of them is, a, is, a, is an idea for a football novel. Uh, again, the reason why I think it is difficult, why The Road to Lisbon works, and then one of the other novels I'm going to talk about is another football novel works, is it's not about the game. The game... Mm-hmm is there as the, is the backdrop. The game is a thread running through it. But it's about the characters, either the, the characters as players off the field or, most more importantly, the fans. Jockstein had a, a famous quote of football without the fans is nothing, which is quite apt just now, given the fact that we're playing football and we can't get any supporters into the grounds. Yeah. But that's why the road to Lisbon works so well, because it's about people, it's about the fans... It's about their lives and for, for a lot of people football becomes sometimes their effect like a, their religion, their life mm-hmm. but that's what the story is and how that impacts on them and their families and their friends trying to write a description just becomes like a match report and I, I just think as a reader I don't think you would I think you would just yeah. skip those parts Yeah, it's an interesting concept I mean we can all relate to the idea of or the love of a band or a team and, and then going to this big thing. So going to the concert, the travelling there, we all ha- probably have stories when we're younger, going to Slane, it's a it's a concert venue in Ireland and, you know, they, they kind of like become legend in your in, in your group. So I did read a quote 
that someone calls it on the road for football fans sort of about the journey there does it concentrate much on the match as well or? not really so obviously they're from the fans point of view their their story is their, their journey there the road trip which mm. I guess there's quite a lot of comedy in that and it's done really well and Jockstein it's it's the kind of lead up to the game it's his, him and his head his preparations for the game how he's preparing the team but also then going into his background as I mean he was a remarkable man in terms of he was a minor who had a, a decent enough career had a couple of years where he was really good for Celtic but became this pioneer manager I mean to Alec Ferguson cites him as he's as the greatest ever manager and he was Alec Ferguson's biggest ever influence but he also from a social point of view he he lost uh, close friends by signing for Celtic because he wasn't a Catholic and obviously there's that kind of particularly back in the 50s there would have been a much starker divide and by choosing as it were to sign for the other team in, our, in this case Celtic there was people that were no longer his friends and but he he was okay with that he said if they don't want to be my friends for that reason then yeah. then that's fine I'll leave them behind so he's a it's kind of telling his story as well which I think is such a contrast and then as I say it culminates in you know there's not really a lot of the football but it's just this triumph at the end and particularly as a Celtic fan you read it knowing that there's going to be a happy ending which is great yeah, as well that's nice yeah I, I suppose obviously they were on a winning streak but did they get do they think they had a chance going in against Inter Milan in that match yeah I, I mean I always remember I was I was only born the previous July July 66 so um, <laughs> but I always remember growing up my dad always saying that there was a certain point in that season so he would have gone he'd have been going to the, the games as each round progressed and he said there was a certain point after the second or third round that the Celtic fans were starting to chant uh, we're on our way to Lisbon we shall not be moved he said there was just a sense that Something something was happening. Sometimes I think football fans sometimes there's a there's a cliche in football sometimes where they talk about your names on the cup as if it's you're fated to win a cup competition in a particular year. I'm not sure if that that is just a cliche, but certainly that year Celtic fans thought that was mm-hmm. something special was happening. So they, as I say, ten thousand of them, which was a remarkable amount, travelled over there. The only thing my my my, my dad also told me that. When uh, Stevie Channels scored the winning goal, everybody was in my mum and dad's house and they all cheered and woke me up and I started crying. So that was. Oh. <laughs> uh, I said my parents a few years later moved into Stevie Channels, who scored the winning goal for Celtic. We moved into his old house, oh. uh, which was at that time I was about 10 or 11. So that time it was like, you know, just meeting one of like your heroes, uh, yeah, yeah. which was amazing. It, yeah, so that that sounds interesting. I wasn't able to get that. The only one I was able to get out of your choices was the fight, Norman Mailer. But um, yeah. do, which book would you like to talk about next? Um, well, if you want, we can talk about the fight. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so I'm still reading it, but I, it's great. Really, really descriptive, and um, in a way that I didn't think. Kind of understanding boxing <laughs> from from how he's describing it. Maybe you tell me a little bit about the sort of the context and, and why you chose this book. Yeah, well, well, first of all, the book is Norman Mailer is obviously a famous uh, American, or was a famous American writer, and he was also a big boxing fan as well. I think he had actually boxed at one point to, to a fairly decent level. I'm not sure if he started land in the army, but. So he was obviously a big boxing fan. And in 1975, Muhammad Ali was fighting George Foreman in Zaire, which is now, I think, the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
and it was called The Rumble in the Jungle. And I think it was the president of Zaire at the time had wanted to bring this fight out as a kind of show, a way of showcasing his country. So Mailer had gone out to cover it, and I think he went out as a, as a Muhammad Ali fan. I think his writing's absolutely brilliant. There's loads of reasons why I love it. The first is that the as a journalist, the access, or as a writer, the access he would have brought to... So Muhammad Ali would probably be, even then and even now, you know, one of the most famous sporting heroes and icons in the world. He was able to train with him. He was going out running at six o'clock in the morning with Muhammad Ali, trying to keep up with him. He was going into uh, where George Foreman was practising and able to, to stand at the ringside and watch him boxing, preparing for this fight. And that level of access is more or less not non-existent anymore in journalism because everything's so controlled and you know, there's images to, to protect. And there's obviously there's maybe more of a distrust between sports people and the media. So in terms of that, access is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. I also love it because I'm not a boxing fan at all. I don't like boxing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't watch it. it I, it's just a sport that just doesn't interest me at all. I just don't like the idea of, you know, the two people getting into the ring and, and battling each other. I also think now there's part of me that thinks it's maybe just kind of, at least wrestling's honest about being kind of showbiz and fake, whereas I think boxing sometimes tries to pretend that uh, I'm never quite 100% sure of all of it. It's above board. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it was simpler times back in 1975. But I think the fact that somebody can write a book about a sport that I've absolutely no interest in and, and do it in such a way that is so captivating uh, really appeals to me. And, you know, even, it's been a while since I've read it, but just those wee bits that, that stick in my mind that, uh, you know, there was a, I think there was this, there was a scene where George Foreman's practicing and he, Norman Mailer's describing how he's just battling into this big punch bag, absolutely leaving a dent in this that, you know, most mere mortals wouldn't even be able to get anywhere near. And and then taking that into the ring where he's actually hitting another human being who's able to withstand that and then ultimately beat him. And also I think Muhammad Ali is just one of the, not just sporting icons, I just think if you look at his personality and his politics, in relation to America and, and the kind of struggle of, of people over there, I think he's just an absolute inspiration. And I, I, that's why I just think it's a, it's such a brilliant book to read. Yeah, and I think it's that's the thing, like you're saying you're not a boxing fan. I, I wouldn't be either. I, I actually did do kickboxing for about six months and I did really like it. Um, so I can understand that it's fun. But I think reading about just any kind of sports person here has that kind of dedication like he really kind of goes into obviously he was privy to the training and um, he really goes into how he did the whole rope a dope or the kind of when he was leaning on the ropes and yeah tiring people out and really just how he analyzed every every punch to her to figure out how to channel it down his body like he talks about in the, in the beginning I thought it was really interesting almost like he's writing about him in slow motion like the ripples across his arms and everything and it's really beautifully descriptive and you're totally in it it's one of the things that that, that fight in particular the rumble in the jungle so there is that when you're talking about that rope adult there's a whole period where Muhammad Ali basically leans on the, the ropes and is, almost allows himself to be used as a human punch bag to tire out George Foreman. When George Foreman tires, then he just he's able to, to you know, mm. take the fight to him. But then obviously with hindsight, everybody knows what happened to I think it was Parkinson's Muhammad Ali ended up. Yeah. With, and, you, and you wonder whether those 
the number of blows that he would have suffered yeah. that you know when you see those fights and you just wonder if what effect I mean, uh, none of them come out well do they? they they all sort of not a nice idea to have your head pounded so I, I had an uncle an uncle who used to be a doctor and I think he once described to me you know, just any sort of head blow, particularly in boxing, and what that does to the the movement of the brain within your, because obviously the brain's within like, yeah. within your head. And people when they talk about being punched drunk, and you think of that, you're relentlessly doing that over a number of years, yeah. and not have an effect on you. There's been a few maybe boxing uh, novels, but certainly boxing is a is something that can be filmed, and again because it's just one on one, you know, things like even like Raging Bull. And uh, you know, there's there's films where it's possible are easier to film fight scenes than it would be to to film football scenes. And there's a kind of that gladiatorial, just one man against another yeah. man within a ring. Everybody else is being for blood, and these yeah. two guys are, you know, it's the last man standing. It's so glamorous, like it's all the who's who seem to be at these matches, and um, like Hunter Thompson and Robert Frost, like they they kind of drew all the celebrities and. Yeah, and I think I think Muhammad Ali was just, you know, mesmerising on and off, uh, in and out of the ring at that time. So he would have attracted those people yeah. anyway. And you know, I think again when you look at his life, you know, he refused to to join up to the American army. I think he was called into the draft to go to the Vietnam War and refused to go. And so as a result, I think he didn't. He wasn't really able to fight. He kind of put a a stop on his career for a while, which kind of affected him as well. But again, like a man of of real principle. But he, you know, it was people were attracted to his honour, his star. So that's why all these people, might even why Norman Mailer would have would have been there. And also, I think it's not a book. I think it could have been written by a British journalist. I think American sports writing. Again, I spoke to a friend of mine who said that, in certainly traditionally in America. The best writers were always sports writers, and even if they had a big, say, they had a big trial or a big political scandal, mm. they draft in if they wanted a lot of coverage. They draft in the, the best writers from sport because they knew they, they were the best writers. So it's always been held in a higher esteem than it has been yeah. in the UK. Although there's a, there's always been a few exceptions, but yeah, I wonder why that is. I, I, I wonder why. Obviously, you're saying they let. They were letting the press in, and Norman Mailer was sort of well known. But did you think Ali had a, like, trusted him? Why did he let Mailer in? As I say, I think there was probably easier access then. I think I think he was very aware, Muhammad Ali, of the, the power of publicity, and you know he was the kind of master of soundbite probably before the word was invented. In terms of he knew he was he was smart, he was clever, he he was quick witted. You know he was. You know, even if somebody was trying to kind of trip him up, he was just really on the ball, very articulate. And so probably realised the, the value of of publicity, of positive publicity. And I think the fact that maybe Mailer knew a wee bit about boxing as well, and he seemed to like him up to a point. Yeah. You can never, you'd only get, I think, with these people so close and then they'll keep you at yeah. arm's length. But I think it was, he certainly seemed to have a, an affection for him. You kind of felt that in the book. Yeah, I suppose like he, I made her, obviously he's a bit of a brutish man, but he, I say he was fun to be around as well. <laughs> he was married six times, so he must have been fun for a while anyway. I think he was, I think he was volatile. A friend of mine once told me a story that he, he's a writer, my friend, and one of his friends was trying to get into book reviewing. So my friend put a word in with one of the newspapers in Glasgow and this guy reviewed his book and that was how he got in. And, and the guy ended up 
giving them a bad review in the, in the paper. To cut a long story short, a couple of years later, my friend was at Edinburgh Book Festival and, and happened to be on doing something with Norman Mailer and told Norman Mailer this story. And Norman Mailer said to him, well, what did you do? And he said, well, nothing. He said, that was just, that was the end of the friendship. And Norman Mailer just shook his head and he said, no, no, that's not what you do. And apparently it happened a couple of times where people would give him a bad review and he would go and say it was the New York Times or the Post and say, eh, can I speak to Paul Cuddy? And they'd show, show him to my desk and he'd just go on and just hit him, punch him. And that's <laughs> what happens when you give me a bad review. Yeah, yeah. And oh, God. I know, d- didn't Nate Mailer, famous interview he did with, is it Vidal? Gore Vidal. No, or, or Al Gore. I'm getting confused between them. No, I think it was Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal. Yeah. And he had written something about him he didn't like. So he wanted to sort of square off with him in this interview. Um, yeah, he's, as I say, I think he, uh, that's what, cause I think he had been a boxer when he was younger. So I think he still thought he was quite yeah, handy with his first. Definitely. Wonder holds a grudge. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's really, I mean, obviously they knew the fight was going to be big. But I wonder if they know, you know, they got, people call it the fight of the century. And like he was obviously tailing along with Ali, knowing that it was going to be a big fight. I think. Obviously, there's no, there's not been anyone else like Muhammad Ali, but I also think it's of its time of you wouldn't have had the same level of live sport at the time. You wouldn't have had the, you know, you know, for example, I, I presume you could probably turn on a sports channel any night of the week and see a boxing match or a football match or anything. There was probably a mystique about it because it was, it was only very rarely, and usually somebody like Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, that level of fight that would have been on live. So it would have been a, a world event. It would have been at a time. In 75, where, so for example, in Scotland, there would have only been three TV channels. So everybody would have watched the same thing and at, at the time. So it would have been a shared experience, as it were. So yeah. for a whole variety of reasons, it would have been, it's almost like the whole world was watching. Whereas if something similar happened just now, somebody might say the whole world's watching, but necessarily be at the same time, where you would know everyone else in your street and your city was tuning into yeah. the same thing. Yeah, for us probably you know Paki Bonner saving that goal and, and yeah yeah that really did feel like everybody in Ireland was was had stopped and gone into pubs of their houses to watch that that's one of the the you know my in my job was obviously go to games and quite often you meet you know, talking about you know you meet your heroes and and Paki Bonner does a lot of work the media in Scotland and so oh, yeah. we've, we've interviewed them all the time so it's I still find it even now strange, like, you know, before the game and he'll just come in and say hello and you maybe stand talking to him for five minutes about nothing, just about general chit-chat and then he's away. And yeah. in my head, I'm thinking, Packy Bond, and he's just talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> as if <laughs> he knows me. And I'm thinking, that's amazing. And I, I keep thinking, I'll never not remind myself how lucky I am to be doing something like that. Yeah, that's great. And it, so do you, have you, do you meet all the footballers in, in Celtic team as well? Or like, would you go to their trainings or anything like that? Or... Um, we would know, just in the course of of working, um, we would just be interviewing them. I mean, obviously everything over the last year has all been done remotely, so we we interview them through WhatsApp or Zoom because effectively they have it's like a bubble within the training ground that only the first team and the coaches are in. Obviously, in order to make sure that they're okay for playing, so we just do everything remotely now. You write about Henrik Larsson. That that would be my boyfriend's favourite player I think I don't, maybe it's changed but it was for years I think it's always it's funny because my, you mentioned I'd written the Tommy Burns book so mm-hmm. Tommy Burns growing up for me was my hero and that was like the, the kind of greatest privilege quite hard as well because he just died the previous year and had to write his, his biography and so for me, for me he was always my hero and I think I think for a whole generation who grew up when Henry Larson played he, and he's probably the best player I've seen for goodness knows how many years but I, that's mm-hmm. why he would be I think as you're younger 
those are the heroes that stick with you because that's yeah. it's whether it's it's probably like you you were talking earlier on about music you know because there's a certain period in your life where if it's sport or music it is so formative yeah it's the only thing that you think you know it's the most important thing in your life is you know your favorite band your favorite singer or it, it dictates so much to do with with your life and that's why those songs and those artists, they, they stick with you maybe more so than ones that you yeah. kind of you start to get into now. You get older and you have to <laughs> less time for <laughs> that's why my my uh, my favourite band will always be Duran Duran. Uh, yes. Did I mention that? Yeah, you wrote about Duran Duran as well. So. It, was a, it was a book of short stories. So every every short story the title is a Duran Duran song. So I'm I'm a big a real big fan. And that goes back to I think the first album came out in 1981 and I was about third or fourth year at school at the time. Yeah. And, and so that's, so anytime I hear those songs, it takes me back to being a teenager and I've kind of just stayed with them. And if I hear, I'm thinking of early 90s of The Prodigy or Cranberries or anyone like that, it's just so utterly nostalgic when you hear it. My, uh, my oldest daughter, Louise, is and I was a massive Prodigy fan. I have no idea how many times she went to see them. Right, yeah. And one year at Christmas, and I think she was only about maybe 17 or 18 at the time, and I learned to play, I did I did a country and western version of Firestarter oh, just, yeah. to, just to embarrass her and got my two nephews dressed up as uh, Christmas elves to dance along. And at that age, when you're 16 or 17, anything That's that you can do, <laughs> it's just horrific. So it's great. We've got them. Photographs of her absolutely dying of embarrassment. Although I definitely have gone more bulky now. But uh, yeah, they, they were amazing at the time. Um, really great. So that made, so we talk about... Um, the Thistle and the Grail. And the Grail. Uh, fiction. Yeah, it's a book by Robin Jenkins. So Robin Jenkins is my favourite Scottish author. And I think that Thistle and the Grail is the best uh, football novel mm-hmm. ever written. As I say, there's not been that many of them. Um, and it was written back in the 1950s. And Robin Jenkins, to me, still is, is kind of one of Scotland's best-kept secrets. He wrote about 30 novels. His most famous novel was The Cone Gatherers. It was always a, a real bugbear of mine when I was growing up. We, we weren't really taught any Scottish literature in schools. Mm-hmm. It was it was like sort of classic English literature or some American novels. And we read some good books, but it was only later that you discovered all these great Scottish writers yeah. and great Scottish books and it was when I was working somebody had introduced me to Robin Jenkins so I've read a, a lot of his novels and when I read this it was just it was incredible to read a book about football and going back to what I was saying earlier on it, it, it's not about the football the football is just is there but it's all about the characters so it's basically yeah. the, the thistle is the football team and they are the, the kind of junior football team so it would be a lower level than in a professional football. So like lots of towns in Scotland would just have their local team, their, their team that, that they would play, they would play other towns. So this was the, the team and the Grail is like the Holy Grail, which would be the Junior Cup. So it's like the, the biggest cup for, at that level in Scotland. And so this team that were relentlessly hopeless, for some reason they something clicks and they go on this cup run and it's how it affects the town but then within that, the relationships and the strains within the, the town. And it's also a book about, you know, football as almost like the religion for people rather than, you know, obviously Scotland was starting to change a wee bit in the 50s. And it was about 
that sense of identity of how you identify with your town but also your team how it can bring you hope how it can bring despair and I think it's an incredible football mm-hmm. novel and it's, it's over 50, 50 odd years yeah. ago it's still to me it still resonates just now in, in, yeah. as, a, as a novel in Scottish terms Especially, I mean, in Scotland, football is such a big part. It's a way of life and also politics and religion for people. And Well, one of the things, one of the good things that he did was he didn't choose a professional team or he didn't make up a professional team who would have had to play against Celtic or Rangers or whatever. And then that would have, I think, coloured people's perceptions on the, the game or how it was because he took it right down to a really local level. And the very first scene is... Uh, it takes place at, at the football ground where the team's lost again, but he's, he's describing more the reaction of the supporters on the terraces to, you know, the suffering that they have as they see their team losing. And then it's all about, you know, some of the the old guys in the town, the, the guy who is the kind of main employer in the area, who's also the chairman, and how he's, he's resented. Uh, it's... It's just a bit kind of almost like a kind of microcosm of, I suppose, 1950s Scottish society. And there's a there's a minister in it as well. You know, he kind of looks, Robin Jenkins looks at the kind of role of the church and how it's, you know, that pressure that other things like football are, are taking people away from their tradition of, of going to church, for example. Mm-hmm. So, you don't, you don't, so you don't have to be a football fan. You think it's just a standalone book. It, it's really good. I think I think so because I, I think if you like football, and as I say, there's, there's so few good football novels anyway. I think you would enjoy it, but I, I think like the best novels is kind of like what I was saying about Norman Mailer. I mean, I don't like boxing at all, but I think if if a book's well enough written, I think you can engage in it because I think we've all read books that, for whatever reason, you you pick it up. But you, you know, people say it's something outside my comfort zone. It's you know, it's something that's maybe unfamiliar. You think I wouldn't like that, but you end up you do because. Ultimately, if somebody's able to tell a good story or, you know, the way that they tell it, then, you, then you'll engage with it. And I would also, as well as The Thistle and the Grail, everybody should read The Cone Gatherers. That is one of those books I was okay. saying uh, that I do judge people in, on the reaction to it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, the Corn Gatherers, if they don't like it, you're, you're their persona non grata to you. But I, I, I'm not sure if I'm that extreme, but I would just say <laughs> I'm just be slightly wary. Yeah, yeah. No, you have to be selective with with be let in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And um, what's the, the, the next book then you've chosen? The last book is a book called Shoeless Joe by WP Kinsella, who's a Canadian author. And the reason I chose this book is this is the book that was turned into the film Field of Dreams. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is my favourite film oh, is of, it? All, of all time. I couldn't if you asked me to choose my favourite book or my favourite uh, song or artist I couldn't do it because you, you know there's a favourite girl a few. yeah <laughs> exactly um, but for some reason Field of Dreams is, yeah. is, is been my favourite film so I actually watched the film first and I just love it and I've, I've no idea how many times I've seen it and it I just think it's it's a, just a, a wonderful film but then when I discovered yeah. it was it was a, a book then I got the book and at the time uh, he, he wasn't being published in uh, Britain so I had to yeah. I, I can't even remember how I did it but I had to order the book from Canada and, and yeah. got a copy and it, it was it was brilliant as well and, and what I like about it is you know that idea of what's better the book or the film and, yeah. but for, to me they kind of sit side by side I think because I had so much affection for the 
yeah. the film. And yeah. Fremdy doesn't know. Basically, the story is a, is a guy called Ray Kinsella who hears a voice one night that says, if you build it, he will come. Mm-hmm. And basically, he he's to plough up his cornfield and build a baseball field. Mm-hmm. And then Shoeless Joe is a baseball player called Shoeless Joe Jackson, who, who was real, who basically get banned in 1919 for him and his, some of his teammates for they claim took bribes to, to fix the World Series in baseball. So Ray Kinsella builds this baseball field so these guys can come back and play baseball again. And then it's all about, he's almost like, he goes out on these kind of road trips to find people to bring them back to this field to fulfil unfulfilled dreams. And in the, in the film, he goes and kidnaps, uh, I think it's James L. Jones, who's like a kind of, plays a 60s hippie writer who, Love baseball, but then it's kind of become a recluse. In the book, he actually kidnaps J.D. Salinger. Oh, really? Why did uh, I think that? I well, basically what happened was, in the book, he, he kidnaps J.D. Salinger. And I think J.D. Salinger was a big baseball fan, and he comes back to the field. And I think the idea is that J.D. Salinger then goes away with the baseball players into the cornfield, and he'll come back and tell the story. Yeah. J.D. Salinger was quite litigious and wasn't happy about being in the book, and so said that if, if it was ever... Turned out a film that needs sue. So the filmmakers rather than the hassle of having to deal with a lawsuit, yeah. change character. Um, yeah. Which I didn't discover until I, I read the book, but it's a, it's a great book. He wrote a lot of baseball books, WP Kinsella, and again, a lot of magic realism in them, you know, like just strange, weird things happen, which within the context of the book, you just take for granted, but they are like, you know, yeah. like voices just telling you to build baseball fields and stuff. But uh, I love, I love that for that reason. It has. Um, I mean, I've only seen it once. I'd have to see it again. But it does stay with you that phrase. Like, I, I don't know if you coined that phrase. If you thought that they will come, it's definitely something people sort of use um, colloquially over the years. Just, um, I think it's probably come because it's uh, it's definitely it's in the first page of the the novel. That's the, yeah. the voice, and that's probably where people just yeah. kind of come. And this is whispering through the. I don't know, the corn fields of the week. Yeah, so I think the book was originally started as a, a short story. So the short story was just about him building the, the baseball field and Shoeless Joe and his teammates from, they'd played for the Chicago White Sox back in 1919 and then a few of them had taken bribes at the time and they were all banned. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this was them coming back to play baseball again. Yeah, stuff. when you said you were choosing sports books, I, I didn't realise you could choose fit them. Fiction, football fiction books, which is great because I wouldn't have thought that. I, like when I think of sports books, I just think biographies, which is probably a bit ignorant. <laughs> um, do you have any favourite <clears throat> sports biographies? Well, do you know what? I'm, I, I don't read a lot of sports biographies, partly because I think, you know, I was saying earlier on about how kind of sports become a bit sanitised and protected in terms of like Norman Mailer's access to Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I think a lot of times football biographies are written just to make some money at certain times of the year and they don't really yeah. give you the the honest portrayal. The best one I've read, actually I've got it lying here, is a, is a book that came out about a year or two ago by a guy called Oliver Kay, and it was called Forever Young, and it's the story of Adrian Doherty, mm-hmm. and football's lost genius, he calls him, and Adrian Doherty was a, a young player from the north of Ireland who was signed by Manchester United, and he just preceded uh, Ryan Giggs's generation. Mm-hmm. But by all accounts, from Alec Ferguson, from Ryan Giggs, from Gary Neville, from everyone who played and trained at the time, he was better. He was like part of this incredible talent. 
but he was also quite a, a maverick character. And so, for example, when the, the youth team would go and watch Manchester United play in Old Trafford, Adrian would take his guitar and go and busk in Manchester City Centre. So he was mm-hmm. quite a strange character. And just before he was about to make his first team debut for Manchester United, he suffered a really bad knee injury. And then when he came back, he was never the same player and he kind of drifted out of the game. And sadly, I think he was about 26, 27, he, he died in, in Amsterdam. So this guy has written a story of his incredible journey to, to almost being like a superstar. But then what happened after that and how he... He lived his life where he went. You know, he was he wrote songs, he wrote poems, and it's it's an incredible it's an incredible book. Um, yeah. it's 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 been a real standout for me. Yeah, it's good. I have read um, the so I've heard of the fight. That's the one that anyone I've heard of out of those. Um, it's always it comes up a lot in sort of best sports books ever, and, and especially the intro. I've I've heard people say it's the best intro to a book ever. Um, I have read Andre Agassi, Andre Agassi's Open. That's quite good. I think any sort of book where you just sort of get an insight into what it takes to to be a good sportsman or a good. I, I always feel. Player. I think I always think with see with autobiographies. I was always a big John McEnroe fan when I was yeah. growing up, and I read his autobiography, and it was just you know all the good things that happened in his life were up to him. Anything bad that happened was somebody else's fault, and it was just like relentlessly. Yeah. More, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised. And I just feel yeah. the best, I think the best football it be you? <laughs> I just think you have to be, if you're going to do it, you have to be yeah. honest. So, for example, Tony Cascarino, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but he his autobiography is one of the best autobiographies I've ever read because it's brutally and painfully honest. He He basically... Because there's, there's scenes in it where he, he played for Celtic for a brief spell and was didn't didn't do well, but describes how the psychology of he's he's running down the park and he's waiting for the ball to come into the box, and the voice in his head's telling him he's rubbish and he's going to miss and it's just you know what's he doing on this park? It's just to see that down in the page yeah. is remarkable. So it's like what's and all, and and I like that because yeah. I think you think more of somebody who's then able to kind of see the flaws as well as the yeah. good points that's a good point because so many people are already writing about all the amazing things they do we don't need to hear it again and um, so to have that extra sort of insight into insecurities I mean I always think when you know in rugby when you're watching them to take a try um, and that silence like before they kick it I'm always thinking oh my god if that was me I would literally be like you're going to miss you're going to miss you're going to miss you <laughs> it's like that kind of mental control you would need you know, it's funny, I, I was talking to somebody about that exact moment in rugby yesterday. Yeah. And it sums up to me why, certainly over here, it's why I don't like rugby and also why it's a real class thing. I went to a Scotland Island game last year and uh, it's an 80 minutes I'll never get back in my life. But that moment where the, the, say the, the Ireland player is waiting to take a penalty or conversion and big message comes up on the screens at Murrayfield for 70,000 Scotland fans, respect the kicker, keep quiet so you couldn't boo or even wave the scarf to distract him and I'm thinking, it's professional sport, you either support your team and want the other team to lose or what's the, yeah. what's the point and I just thought this isn't for me. Yeah <laughs> it's too for life. I mean I know certainly in Scotland our way of supporting, quite often I find it quite strange as quite being aggressively negative to your own team. So you'll go to a football game and somebody sitting beside you will sit for 90 minutes 
verbally abusing the players and the team that he supports, and that's his way of supporting them. So yeah. it's quite a, it's a strange thing. And I've, my uh, my son-in-law is American, so when, a few times when we were over visiting them and we went to like, baseball games, and I found that it was the complete opposite. Where like, you just say everybody's mixing, and one team, which is ostensibly the home team, are doing terrible. And I was just waiting for somebody to stand up and shout, "Come on, just hit the ball!" But they were all just sitting about having a a beer and enjoying the sunshine. And I thought it's just it's certainly a cultural thing the way we get involved yeah. in sport. It's definitely cultural. Um, differences in in reacting like to a loss I remember in college I went to Wolverhampton um, for a year and I worked in the Wolverhampton Wanderers pub there's a pub there that was for season ticket holders and so we would me and my friends would work in the bar and watch the game the only time I watched football really um, with any kind of interest uh, because I knew if if they won all the fans would come in and they'd be happy and they would stay and then my I'd get paid till the end of the shift but if they lost they would come in for a half a pint and they would leave and go home because they were just so devastated and then I would be sent home so I wouldn't be paid <laughs> for a longer shift so I felt like in Ireland I think people would maybe stay out anyway maybe not as long but they would still stay out um, even if they lost a bit yeah. longer I don't know if that was just, or maybe that's just what it's like when you're proper, like season ticket holder fan. I always think you shouldn't. It's a bit like you know I said earlier on. I can't affect how a game is going to go when I lose. So I always, I wouldn't let it affect my my yeah. night or my weekend. Or whatever. you can be disappointed when you lose, but you you have to keep that a sense of perspective about that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just my selfish spin on it. People <laughs> going home in fine mood. I don't know. <laughs> That, that's it was so great thank you so much for talking to me no problem at all well thanks very much for, for asking me on thanks for listening this has been a DLR Libraries podcast keep listening for our need to read extra bits where Paul shares with us what else he's been reading thank you so are you are you reading anything at the moment um, non sports related that you really like or you have read recently? Yeah, well, I I'm actually reading a book. Uh, my I think it's, it's my first graphic novel actually. Um, oh right, yeah. Book uh, the Complete Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Okay. Um, someone recommended it to me and M A U S. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's basically it's a graphic novel. Two combined graphic novels, Art Spiegelman's parents were from Poland and, and were Holocaust survivors. And so he was always aware of, of that family story. And over a period of time, he spoke to his dad who told him the story of how they met in Poland and what happened to them and, you know, and their families throughout the Second World War. And the so he he's, he's the book is a combination of you know, we illustrations of Art Spiegelman sitting in his dad's house while they're sitting having a cup of coffee and his dad's talking to him about what's happening now and then telling him the story. And then chapters where it takes you back into you know, 1930s Poland and they kind of build up to, you know, as the kind of closer to the Second World War and then what happened when the, the Nazis invaded Poland. Um, and it's, it's something, as I say, somebody had recommended it to me because I don't really read graphic novels. But I'm absolutely totally engaged with it. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's absolutely 
I'd seen a documentary before about Alex Spiegelman, so it's quite he's quite a fascinating guy. But I just feel as a way of maybe teaching people, or you know, particularly maybe young people, as a way of accessing what actually happened uh, during the Holocaust. I think it, I think it'd be a brilliant platform to to introduce people to. Yeah, definitely. I think it takes. I haven't found the right one. Well, I'm not looking, but um, maybe I'll do a podcast on graphic novels. But I haven't found one that's like, pulled me in yet. I think we take you know. Once, like you say, like it clicks, it takes the right book, and then then there's I mean, something to discover. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I'll. I'll I mean, I, I think I'll try another one just to see what I, you know. It's not something I don't think I'll suddenly start devouring graphic novels compared to maybe the normal kind of fiction that I read. But yeah. I, I've, I've been really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. In terms of of actually enjoying it. There's some um, beautiful illustrators out there, so it's great to. Sort of respect that work as well. I think. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.